0: For 240 years, our union endured. But it's under challenge like never before. We're engaged anew in a struggle between democracy and autocracy. Can we save democracy? Overcome authoritarian movements at home and abroad? Come together to ensure the government of the people, by the people, for the people endures? We say we can. Democracy will and must prevail. Play your part by joining the Union. The Union gives Americans the tools to mobilize friends and neighbors, to amplify our voices, organize for democracy, and defeat Trumpists and authoritarians from the White House to the City Council. It matches the skills of volunteers and activists with campaigns and causes, work that must be done to protect democracy. Lincoln believed it was the sacred duty of every president to preserve the Union at all costs. We believe it's the sacred duty of every American. Now it's up to all of us, to we the people. Because together, we will win. America will endure. The Union. All in.
1: If we are going to... To save democracy. We are going to need to reach across political lines. We will need the support of the vast majority of Americans should we have to overthrow a dictatorship. 50% of the vote may not even be enough to win elections in the future. We need to reach out to the center, whether we like it or not. Dom Jones is a minister and community activist who works with businesses and community leaders in Huntington Beach, California, and works to address the problem of homelessness and to advocate for youth and community services. As an African-American woman in a conservative community, she organizes across political lines daily. As a minister, she seeks to bring communities together. Join us on April 3rd at 2 p.m. Pacific Time online. To register, go to tinyurl.com slash organizeacrosslines. That's tinyurl.com slash organizeacrosslines.
2: Now, according to public reporting, uh, DC Mayor Muriel Bowser first called Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy to ask for help at 1:34 p.m.
3: It looks now
1: like the Capitol the Police. Yeah, Pete, let me break away from you a left. second
0: because things are happening very quickly.
2: According to your written testimony, you were, quote, aware that demonstrators had breached the Capitol.
1: American democracy is under attack, and there's precious little time to save it. And many people still aren't focused on one of the greatest risks and that's state houses. Corrupt politicians in state houses across the country have been experimenting with ways to undermine democracy in a cynical quest for power. David Pepper, author of Laboratories of Autocracy, joins us to talk about this ongoing threat and what we must do about it. David Pepper is a lawyer, writer, political activist, former elected official, adjunct professor, and he served as chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party between 2015 and 2021. He has engaged in numerous fights and extensive litigation over voter suppression and election laws in the Buckeye State. So now I'd like to hand the meeting over to David Pepper to talk about the assault on democracy at the state and local levels, and what we have to
3: do about that. All right, there you go, David. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And, and you know, in, in a way, it feels, um, it when you introduce me and what I'm going to talk about it, compared to what's happening in, in um, Ukraine, it, it may feel small, and it sort of does even when you introduce me. At the same time, I think, as you said, as we were starting, um, you know, there's a battle for democracy everywhere it looks different in different places it's obviously uh, truly uh disturbing to watch it play out in ukraine um and, and i know you can talk about that later and, and uh, I, I think about it and watch it every day in horror but the truth is this battle for democracy is global and it looks different in different places and the reason i wrote the book that i'm gonna talk about tonight and, and i'll walk through this powerpoint before we get to questions is it looks different in America right now, although it's it, there's an incredibly aggressive attack on democracy happening. Too often it it um, is covered uh, simply through January 6th and Donald Trump. And yes, those are those are parts of it. But my worry, the reason I wrote this book uh, quite quickly last year and, and I'm pushing it out as much as I can is that I think the most damaging attack on democracy is happening, as Richard said, at the state level in state houses in a way that most people don't notice it without the blunt force of ukraine without the you know bizarreness and and disturbing way that january 6th played out but my worry is at the state level it's actually that's where it's most effective because we don't really see it and if we don't wake up pretty soon uh we're going to we're going to see our democracy underwater without ever anyone casting you know without the obvious violence or uh illegitimacy of January 6th, but it'll all be done through a statehouse strategy that is actually a lot more subtle. So with that, let me open up this um, PowerPoint. I'll do it quickly, go to questions and let you talk about other topics that are top of mind. But um, let me start by just walking through something. I think people who have not read the book have found this to be helpful. At some point, I'll also drop in some um, text messages you can send to a certain number if you wanna get these slides, or if you wanna get an introduction to the book itself, uh, so, you can dive more. Nothing I say tonight will, will replace actually reading the book itself, but it's a good, this is a good sort of summary. So, you know, relevant to the big picture of what we're seeing around the world, what would we all say? What would we all say if um, we saw a country doing the following things rigging its own legislative elections so that 99% of its outcomes were guaranteed, so that a minority party stayed in power, even if the majority of the people voted against that party? Uh, What would we say if if that government attacked the independent operations of elections and the vote counting process, or the means by which the voters they consider the opposition voted, they just attacked how they voted, or if they made it harder for people of the opposition to protest? You know, we're seeing that right now in Russia, obviously. What if they attacked the independence of courts? What if they attacked the elected will of the people expressed through referenda, expressed through constitutions? What if they changed the laws to protect themselves from, from being held accountable for corruption? What if they censored their own history uh, to, to eliminate the parts that shed the worst light on, on what they had done in the past? You know, I know you're thinking, you know, this is something that we do see around the world. We've seen in Hungary, we obviously Russia right now is an extreme example versus the mid nineties. And when we see this in other countries, we call it out. You know, we've all been calling out the last couple of years what's happened in Hungary. It's falling away from democracy. Uh, here's the other. Pr- here's the problem, though. Everything I just described is happening in you know, American state houses. Everything, uh, not just attacks on voting rights, which get attention, or some crazy right wing laws, but a sequence of attacks on democracy itself in all these forms is not just happening in Hungary. It's not just happening in Russia. It's happening in state house after state house in this country. Uh, and if you read the book, I go through the details. This sounds like a maybe an over exaggerated comparison. It's it's not, this is the this is what's happening in state houses around the country. This is the attack on democracy that I, as I said, when I started, it's more subtle than January 6th. It's more subtle than whatever Donald Trump says every day or some of his, his goofball sort of teammates. But the truth is this is the way in which democracy I'm afraid is being attacked right now most um, directly. And I, I hate to say it quite effectively, and that's what I want to talk about. The crisis in American democracy, to use the old Clinton saying, is it's the state house is stupid. That's what. That's where. That's the institution, at least, that's attacking it. We have a lot of people involved, but institutionally, it's the state houses that are attacking democracy. Why are they able to do this? Uh, you know, some of you will know all this stuff, but I want to make sure I review it. And I certainly spent a lot of time in the book on this. States and state houses turn out to be, I believe, the Achilles' heel of American governance because of two factors. One, they have a whole lot of power. People don't know this for the most part, but but state houses, as much as the federal government, more than local government, have a huge amount of power over, over so many aspects of our life, you know, the economy, healthcare, education, energy and climate, as well as over aspects of our politics that we all sort of fight about and debate every day. Again, climate change, a woman's right to choose, equality itself. Uh, you know, how, how do we regulate if we regulate guns, etc. State houses have, if not the same, often more power over these issues than the federal government. Problem is, most people don't know it. But these also, these state houses also have a huge amount of power of democracy itself. They, they set the rules of elections for the most part, at least they, they write the first draft, I'd say. They draw the lines of their state house districts or congressional districts. Uh, they even have a major influence over the presidential electoral college processes Donald Trump tried, tried to take advantage of in January, december of, of a year and a half ago. Um, they also are able to run over federal government a lot of issues. If you wanted Medicaid expansion after Obamacare passed, you needed your state house to do it. it is It wasn't just automatic. That's sort of uh, symbolic of the way that states can do can make a big influence on a federal policy's benefit or or not a state. Uh, they also can run roughshod over governors, secretaries of state, attorneys general, depending on, on the issue. And they also can do the same over local government. So they have this huge amount of power. And, and you, you might say, well, why does that make them an Achilles heel? The Achilles heel aspect is that almost nobody knows it. Almost no one knows who these people are. Almost no one knows the power they have. They don't know what the state budget does. Uh, the elections are, and, and there are a lot of reasons for that. I won't go through all the details, but the elections are very low profile. There's a lack of media coverage for the most part, especially as state and local newspapers are really cratering in terms of their economic model. Often, depending on the state, these are far away in state capitals, so no one knows what these places do. They also have short sessions. A lot of these places to most citizens feel like sort of part-time jobs. They don't really know what these people do. It's all sort of off the radar versus Congress or a mayor or a governor. But there's one other aspect of why the Achilles heel, while the average person back home doesn't know what they do, uh, certain interests in these state capitals know exactly what they do. They're literally right posted up in these state capitals, be it financial interests, business, you know, social issue groups, um, you know, the NRA or, or, or folks that are, that are, that are dramatically against you know, women's right to choose, um, g- folks and groups that, that want to see democracy undermine itself. Unlike the average citizen back home, they don't just know who these legislators are. They know exactly their powers, and they know exactly how their powers can help them, and they have been in these State House capitals, at least, for a long time taking advantage of that. So you've got this combination of a serious amount of power, total anonymity, and a group of people on the inside, though, who know what these people do, and that's leading to the heart of the problem I'm going to describe. But there's one other factor that really, that really makes this worse and has made this far worse over the last decade. That's extreme gerrymandering. In 2011, all around the country, you know, oh, we were all celebrating Obama's victory in eight, nine and 10. Karl Rove and others focused on state houses, but we were still celebrating. And they won a lot of state houses and they won control of offices that draw the district lines. And they went to work in 2011, drawing the most extreme districts in the history of our country. Here's how extreme they were in states that you all probably now think of as sort of red or toss up that were pretty blue not very long ago. You know, Ohio was blue and we were the least blue of these four states. But when Obama won in 08, you know, he turned Ohio blue by four or five points. When he got reelected in 12, he won again by about four points. Uh, The reason 8 and 12 are really good years to compare is because Obama won these two states by about the same amount of, of, of votes percentage wise. But you can see in the intervening year where they gerrymandered what an impact that made in terms of how these states were represented. In Ohio in 08, Obama again won by about five. Look at the congressional map, 10 Democrat, eight Republican. Look at the state house map, 53 Democrat, 46 Republican. When Obama turned Ohio blue, guess what? Ohio was blue at all levels. That's sort of how it's supposed to work. Same story in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Four years later, under the new gerrymandered maps where they slice and dice these districts so that they cannot lose them, they took these these Democratic places and basically rigged them to be Republican, even when Obama won by almost the same amount. So Ohio's 10-8 map became 12-4 Republican Democrat. That 12-4 stayed for the entire decade. The State House that had been a Democratic majority in Ohio became a supermajority Republican State House, even though it was the same blue Ohio both times. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, same story. Look at the Wisconsin story. Obama wins both times, I think close to double digits. That leads to a 60-39 map in Wisconsin in the state house in 2012, completely rigged, even when the voters of 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 Wisconsin were generally blue that year. Here's how bad it is, though. And it's worse than just that it it's not reflecting the voting of the state. They figured out how to draw districts so that almost not a single person On their side in office, in these state houses, and often in Congress, but especially state houses, has any sense of accountability back to the people? They don't ever worry about their elections. Look at this chart here. This are uh, basically in Ohio. They gave themselves about 62 districts out of 99, but it wasn't. It's not just that they win 62; it's that they're almost guaranteed victory in all 62. It's these are blowouts, almost guaranteed. Look at 17 of those 62 seats. They averaged over a decade a 50 point win or more. Uh, the next level down, 21 seats, they average a 30-point victory or more, 65-35 or better. The next 12, 60-40. That means 50 seats or more out of 99. 50 seats over 10 years on average averaged a 20-point victory or more. Total blowouts. And the next 12 seats are 10-point seats or more. These, They basically created for themselves, no exaggeration, an entire generation of people in power in these state houses with all the powers I described above who to a person don't really worry about the next election. Remember that this generation of of undemocratic officeholders I'll I'll put it, that is the heart of the problem because as we're gonna learn in a few slides, if there's no accountability, everything else goes off the rails awfully quickly. But there's one other uh, slide I wanna show you, just how people proof their gerrymandering is. Look at this. This is 18, a wave year for Democrats. Huge year. We picked the House back up. Look at, look at all three of these, but especially look at Wisconsin, because there's maybe no state in the country that's had it worse than Wisconsin in terms of this gerrymandering. Look how decisively the voters of Wisconsin voted for a Democrat for the State House. Nine points they went for Democrats over Republicans in the State House when you add up the votes across the state. What did that nine point victory translate into in terms of the State House? Look at that. A 64, 36 percentage breakdown in the state House of Wisconsin. A major a decisive majority voting Democrat becomes a decisive supermajority voting Republican. No exaggeration. That's a system that Vladimir Putin would stare at and say, wow, pretty good. You know, just like Trump calls him a genius, he'd look at the Wisconsin and say, You're doing pretty well, guys. You're in the minority, but you would never know it. You control everything, even though the voters actually don't agree with you. This is what Orban is doing in Hungary. That's how warped the gerrymandering is. And as I I explain in the book, and I do, again, I hope folks will take a look at the book because it goes through all this in a lot more detail than I can tonight. It turns out that almost everything we assume about the, the behavior of public officials in a world without democracy, which they've been living in for their entire careers, almost everything we assume and hope for from elected officials gets flipped and reversed. And the behavior that we assume emerges from, you know, a robust democracy where you have to go to the voters every two or four years and explain what you've done so they reelect you. Everything we expect that's good from that system gets reversed in a world where there are guaranteed outcomes and no one knows who they are except for the insiders. Well, how, examples: Normally, when you go for re-election, I did this when I was in office. You go to in a real democracy, you go to your voters and you say, "Hey, I." I I improved things in our community. I lifted wages. I improved schools. I I made investments in our infrastructure. I improved your health care. Well, and that's how you get reelected in a normal democracy. But in a world where you're guaranteed re-election, those outcomes no longer matter at all because they don't know who you are and they don't have a choice anyway. You're getting reelected no matter what. On the flip side, how do you get elected? The insiders who are watching Columbus, you want them to be happy with you they're the ones who can get you the money to make sure you 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 skate right through and how does this work in the end those those private interests generally are pushing for things that take public money and give it to them and that's how you make them happy so i put these two incentives together the top two perfect example i go through the book they have given hundreds of millions of dollars in the last generation to for-profit online charter schools private schools some have been total scams. The education in Ohio, the public education rankings of Ohio have plummeted over the last 15 years as they've done this. These schools have done nothing but destroy kids' education. What happens when they do this? Terrible public outcomes. The public schools get worse, but the private people are happy. They all get reelected. That's how you get reelected. Those public outcomes don't matter. The private people being happy do matter. Other other incentives that get reversed when you have this world of anti-democracy, as they'll call it, uh, lack of popular support doesn't matter. In fact, the less popular idea in terms of being extreme in your party, if you push a big right-wing idea through, you just made it more likely you won't have a primary. So not only is there not an incentive to be do things that are popular, there's actually an incentive in a weird way to do things that are extreme, that way you don't have a primary, which is the only election you worry about if your general election is guaranteed. There's obviously no incentive to cross party lines, if that's the case. And one other major one is there's a powerful incentive to attack democracy. These people have not been in a real election. They're scared of real elections. If you haven't been in something, and and if you are, if you're stuck in it and it will cost you power, you're scared of it. And everything they've done in their world without democracy would actually guarantee that they would likely fail if they ever win a fair district. So that powerful incentive to attack democracy, their survival depends on not having a real democracy emerge in their state and in their district. And that's why they use the powers they have a democracy to undermine it. A couple other slides. So I caution everybody, parts of this presentation are quite disturbing and alarming, but I will get to the positive part. I see Ellie nodding his head. Yes, this part is, is sort of a downer. Part of the book is a downer. I do it though, because if we don't frame the battle for what it is, we will not fight back effectively. And I'm here to call on all of us to fight back I know that's what you're doing. Uh, so there's one other thing that, that I wanna say though, L, I'm afraid that makes it even worse for a second before we we, we, we get our marching orders on how to do better. And that is, okay, here's the problem. They're, they're the Achilles heel, they have great power. No one knows about it. The incentives are all screwed up. As if that weren't bad enough, it's not happening each state on its own. People figured this out a generation ago. ALEC, groups like the NRA, major companies, the Koch brothers, they figured out a generation ago and then they hardwired these places to do their bidding that the best place to go to get really unpopular profit-seeking policies done was not Congress, but for every reason I just described, it's these state houses. They're the easier place to do everything you wanna do if you have an agenda that, that basically is pushing extreme or unpopular items that deliver poor public outcomes, and you want the people who do those things to stay in office. It wouldn't work in other levels of office. But state houses, that's exactly what you can do. And so about a generation ago, I go through the details in the book, and a lot of you will know about Alec. They came up with a system where they essentially have weaponized state houses to serve a broader agenda. What's the agenda? It's all these issues that we see battled out every day. Not in Congress, where basically nothing ever happens, but at the state houses where it's nonstop activity all the time, like a full-out assault again and again and again on all these issues and others. The heart of it often is attacking uh, efforts to protect against climate change. Uh, that, that's where so much of the money is coming from. It's we don't want to do anything different when it comes to climate change. But it's also all these other issues, whether it's privatizing education, like I talked about, loosening gun laws, undermining the Affordable Care Act and broader access to healthcare. The broader trickle on economics is, is implemented at these levels attacking organized labor, attacking consumers, attacking women and reproductive rights. It's, this is where they're going to do all this stuff. Why? Because almost everything on here is, is, is A, unpopular, B, generally leads to, to poor public outcomes. And, and I'll, say, I'll say it this way, I, I don't wanna um, take too much time on this, but the general MO of these state houses is, go, go to the seventh one here, four across and three across the second line. So much of what these state houses are doing is simply moving massive public assets into private hands. I mentioned the school funding, the the privatization of the energy grid down in Texas, where people froze to death, as Beto O'Rourke continues to point out. Diminished public infrastructure, diminished uh, or a tax on public broadband, so it's instead private broadband. So much of this is about controlling state houses, so they take the public assets of their states and hand them over to the private players who are posted up. That's a lot of what's happening. But over a generation, I call the the book Laboratories of Autocracy because these states are always learning from their activities. They're always getting better at it. What have they learned? Just like those incentives I mentioned earlier, they've learned number one, these state houses will pass things no matter how unpopular. In fact, they've learned if you wanna do something unpopular, you're best off going to state houses. They'll do it and they'll get reelected. So one is, go to state houses, do unpopular things. That's why what you see, in t- that attack on Roe v. Wade in Texas, that's really unpopular. You'd never get that done in Congress. You couldn't do that at other levels. But if people know they'll never get you know, elected out of office, they'll do it at the state level. So all around the country, they, they have learned that they can pass really unpopular measures and the people who pass them never worry about the next election. I go through examples of that in Ohio. They like secrecy, but mainly because the, the companies behind these groups don't want to be exposed for being part of them. Uh, it's not because the legislators care; they get reelected no matter what. They've also learned number three, as I said earlier, legislators can overrun the statewide officials. Number four is what I call in my book, the eighty-twenty rule. They are better off throwing a hundred things forward at once. These the the media in these states is so short-handed. The advocacy groups are so up to their up to their eyeballs in this stuff. The more you throw forward, the more it gets through, and no one knows it. Maybe one or two really controversial things create a headline or a protest rally outside the state house come budget time. But while everyone's focused on that issue, it, 10 other issues that never even got in that newspaper story passed. We see that over and over and over again. And what, what, what's worse is because there's no accountability, they could do the thing that didn't pass the next year or the year after that. Or, other, or, or number five, one other thing, these states are always learning from one another. So every single thing that, they, that passes in four, other states, the next cycle will then pass it where they are. The, and, and if something got negative attention, so it failed, well, they're correct for it and, and, and rewrite it. Or let's say it gets struck down by court, they'll fix that. And all of a sudden they pass in other states. So this 84 and five work together, throw as much forward as you can Some of it gets attention, so what? If it fails, you still got 80% of the other things you want it done. And number five is all these states are always learning from each other's successes and failures. And that's why it really is always accelerating. It's not simply a static thing. The more they do, the more they learn, they keep building. And that's why you're seeing what you're seeing right now. That's the next slide. But before I get to that, number six, what they have learned that's a very sobering thing for everybody who believes in politics, they have learned that politicians do not matter. They have learned that the politicians in the systems without democracy all behave the same way, on their side at least. They these If someone's terminal, if someone resigns in scandal, if someone runs for Congress, the next person up behaves the exact same way that they did. It doesn't really matter who the speaker was. They're all doing the same thing. We've seen this in Ohio again and again and again. What matters a lot more, and this is why the attacks on democracy matter, is this line at the bottom, lack of democracy matters more than anything else. As long as the incentives are the screwed up incentives I mentioned earlier, all the politicians who are in these state houses are basically operating the same way, and it doesn't change. So they don't sit around like we do and wait for some exciting Obama-style charismatic candidate. They don't care about that. If they keep the incentives in place that all these politicians respond to in the same way, they get what they want. They don't care if the person is the most boring person in the world. They don't care if they don't can't put a speech together. That doesn't matter. If they're in the office in a gerrymandered district, they will do what the systems incentives uh, predict they will do. And that's why it's really important to them, as much as anything else I just mentioned, to continue to hold democracy at bay in these states. Obama's coalition was a huge threat to them. So they, after 11, they immediately started trying to undermine that coalition in Ohio and other states. The coalition that led to that blue those blue numbers I went through earlier. They didn't want that at any level. Not just Obama, but state house, Congress. So they they've been purging and using voter ID to make that that coalition as weak as possible. Uh, they've attacked organized labor. Later on in the last decade, they began to undermine election outcomes. If a governor won in North Carolina or Michigan or Wisconsin, which they did, they immediately started attacking the power of that governor. It's as if they didn't win a fair election and didn't have didn't have the right to be governor. Uh, they even started late in the decade ignoring citizen-led initiatives. You know, Florida passed a measure that allowed to change the rules in Florida so that people with, with a felony record could vote again. The legislature simply ignored that. Missouri passed a measure for Medicaid expansion when the legislature wouldn't do it. The legislature simply didn't fund it. They basically have begun to not just attack statewide officials who win fair and square, even when they don't, they also are attacking citizen-led initiatives and the results that those initiatives should have created. More lessons they learned in these attacks on voting rights, they basically learned it all works. It's very effective. They also learned, it's kind of what we're seeing right now overseas. They're never held accountable, so they never stop. They never stop because they always win if they keep going. There's not enough accountability right now in our political system that any of them feel any negative outcome from being as extreme as they are. And until we change that, I I worry they will keep going. Uh, So this is leading us into right now. This is why I wrote the book. It's exploding. It's it's faster than ever, not because of the big lie. This is an extension of the last decade. This is not new. This is not because of Trump. This began before Trump. It will keep going on. After Trump is gone, it is, it, is a, it is a longer attack on democracy that's accelerating because they keep getting sort of more aggressive, they keep learning, and they control enough state houses, they can just keep going, and they never have accountability. So it's starting to branch into other types. It's not just the voting rights attacks. It's not just gerrymandering, number one and two. It's attacking elections officials. It's trying to change the way that we run elections. It's, it's crazy laws like the one in Texas where they're encouraging people to sue to, uh, to eliminate people's actual rights. They are legislating the big lie. That's not the cause of this. It's just one of the of how bad it's getting. When you see government officials literally legislate the big lie, that is getting into sort of 1984 type governing. That's where we are. And of course, censoring history, talk about a red flag. When you see Putin talk about, you know, in false ways, Ukraine's history, you see the danger of government censoring history and they're doing it right here in America. So this is sort of the, the, this isn't the beginning, but this is the extension and it's accelerating quickly. So I'll get to the good stuff in a second, but I just wanna close most of the negative here with this fundamental comparison. And this is sort of maybe the most important slide of the whole presentation. We really essentially have two sides in America's battle over democracy. But the two sides are basically in a very different struggle, in a very different battle, because they see the battle differently. One side, and I think it's a side that's probably in this room and Democrats and you know mo- mo- most people in America, we have viewed because we are so proud and confident in our democracy, that democracy is intact and stable. So the game we play when we play politics is, okay we have a level playing field and our strategy is to go out and win elections by convincing people that we're right on the issues and when we win those elections we get to implement the issues for which we, we achieved that mandate and we are the truth is polling does show that on most issues democrats are with most people almost every issue in politics we're with the majority so we're confident as we should be if we have a fair election we're going to win, and then we can get all these great things done. And we decided the most efficient way to do all that is federal elections, because if we win the presidency, the Senate, and the House, we can get all that stuff done. And that quickly means that we focus on federal swing states and swing districts, and we get really excited in federal election years. That's one side's battle in politics in America. The other side is battling a very different battle, because they understand correctly that the things they want are generally very or reasonably unpopular, mostly very unpopular. Trickle on economics, getting rid of Roe v. Wade, crazy gun laws, doing nothing about climate change, n- no health care for people. These are really unpopular ideas. And they realize that. So they realize in a world of robust democracy, they would never succeed. They would fail. They know that. So their battle isn't about trying to push through. Look at, look at the fight between Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell's like, don't even tell people what we're about because he knows it's unpopular. Their battle is not about their ideas winning elections. Their battle is about subverting democracy because only with a subverted democracy can their worldview be put into place on a long-term basis. It's not sustainable in a robust democracy. Almost everything they're pushing for is too unpopular. But once they made that their battle, guess what? They have a very different strategy. And their strategy is go to states, go to state houses. For all the reasons I presented a, above, that's where you control democracy. That's where you shape it. That's where you can undermine it. And by the way, in all those state houses, you can get done all the things I described on the issues they care about. So while one side is fighting federal a federal battle in swing states in federal years, The other side is battling in every state every single year to grab democracy itself. Now, I ask you, if you think about the battle that way, who's going to win? The side that's always on offense in every state versus a side who every couple of years focuses on a few swing states. It's pretty bleak, isn't it? And until we rethink our strategy to understand that that's what they're doing, we will not succeed. And so, the end of my book, and we can talk, I'll talk through the basics here, but not too much. The end of my book is all about reframing our battle to see it as a battle for democracy itself. Until we do that, we're playing a losing game. We're letting them be on offense, we're letting them, we're letting them undermine democracy, and we're not fighting back nearly hard enough when it comes to democracy itself. Um, just a couple examples of that. Once you think of this as a battle for democracy itself, then the Senate. And the House had to step up right away and pass the voting rights measures that would protect democracy. I mean, it's insanity that the Senate isn't acting. And I I really know, obviously, the Republicans aren't going to act. They're part of the other side. But to have any Democrat today say they can't pass voting rights legislation because of the filibuster, I, I tweeted this earlier, would be like Zelensky saying, I can't protect Ukraine until some of Putin's allies give me a thumbs up to do it. That's a ridiculous, it's absurd. It's not even constitutional when you look at the history of our country. We need these guys to pass this stuff right away. This is not just about voting rights. This is about democracy itself. The filibuster is not a legitimate obstacle and we should not. I saw Kamala Harris spoke today. They, were, they, they marched on the bridge in Selma. I'm glad they're doing that, but they cannot have one vote on these voting rights measures and walk away for the rest of the term. We have to keep pushing them to do their damn job and pass these things. And the filibuster is not an obstacle. We we have to turn up the noise because we need their protection. And the history of this country is, if there, are le- if there are state level attacks on democracy and the federal government does nothing, those attacks could very well succeed. So first, the federal government's got to step up. But then what else do we all do while they're doing that or while we're waiting for that? We can't just sit around and yell at them and, and that be it. We have to rethink everything else we do when it comes to protecting democracy. Once you see this as the long game for democracy I've described, all of our strategies look a little different. One, you have to start to see the battle as about democracy itself, but about a long game, the way that John Lewis did or women suffragists, where you have strategies that are about the long game, not just the next cycle and that's it. You judge your success on the long game, not just how you did each cycle. My best example this is Stacey Abrams. She, if she had judged her success in Georgia each federal cycle, she would have quit 10 years ago. But she knew the battle turned Georgia blue and to change that state was a long game of registering people, of fighting in court, you name it, of her running for governor, and inspiring people. In over 10 years, she did it. We all have to view the battle for democracy that way. We also have to see it as a 50-state battle. No more leaving districts and states un, uncompetitive or not even competed in. No more underfunding candidates unless they're a swing state federal candidate, which we get so excited about while leaving tons of people all over this country running in districts without any support. In the short game strategy, maybe that sounds and feels okay. In a long game, it's a disaster. We also have to stop defining this all as never Trump or pro-Trump. This is bigger than Trump, everybody. Bigger than Trump. The attacks began before he even thought about being president. They will continue long after he's gone. And if we keep defining it as never Trump, you know what happens? We let a whole lot of Republicans who do not support democracy get away with it as if they're doing good things because they don't sound like Trump or they don't endorse Trump. If they're not for democracy, they're not on the right team. We have to make that clear. Um, And we can't, you know, I think a lot of people in 2020, when they heard the election was only about never Trump, voted against Trump and they voted Republican the rest of the way because they were net, those Republicans didn't feel like Trump. Well, most of the Republicans they voted for are attacking democracy every day, and they voted for them. We have to define the teams in a new way. There's so many other things that we can do, and I'll just close with this and then go to Q&A. Every one of us can play a much bigger role than we believe we can play in fighting for democracy. And this is, um, this, if you can't be inspired by Ukrainians stepping up to protect their democracy, I don't know what would inspire you. I certainly am inspired. And it should make us all think about, you know, there are people in, in Ukraine, you know, making camouflage, making Molotov cocktails, you name it. We all have things that we know how to do here that are a lot easier than that, that we're not doing when it comes to affecting democracy. We all have footprints and circles of influence that we could be using to lift democracy, not just through groups and meetings like this, but through what we do every single day and I'll just, I'll give an example. You know, are you, are you on the board of a homeless shelter? Do you volunteer at a homeless shelter or food bank? Is your homeless shelter registering every single person who shows up or every person who goes to that food bank? Or let's say you're the, you know, the mayor of a town. Is that mayor putting every part of his public facing services to work for democracy? Uh, you know, registering everyone who comes to the health clinic or rec center or making sure they know how to vote early. Every institution that we are part of We need to figure out how do we make that a democracy-serving institution. That's the only way I think we're going to get the kind of um, scale of a fight that counters the relentless fight against democracy we're seeing from the other side. There's all sorts of examples I put in my book of this, but I think we all have to lean in a lot harder about how we, that's why I wrote my book. It was one way I thought I could help. What can we all do every single day, not as a separate standalone thing? But it's part of, you know, if you run a restaurant, Sherrod Brown, for example, convinced McDonald's in Ohio when he was Secretary of State to have the voter registration form as part of the menu on every single McDonald's tray. You know, do you run a restaurant? You could do something like that. Do you know a friend who runs a restaurant? If there's a restaurant that does that, do you go and eat there? Tell people to go there to help lift them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much we can all do. And, And I'll just close by saying, and I won't read the whole quote, but this is what John Lewis talked about when he said freedom is not a state, it's an act. There's so much more we all can do and must do at this moment The democracy is, uh, is under attack. With that, I'll stop talking. We'll love to take your questions, comments, and, then, and I'll type in some um, uh, numbers here so you can get the slides yourself and an introduction to the book. Thanks everybody.
1: Let's give them some love, okay, everybody? Yeah, bravo. So um, what, I, what I like to do, you, you know, you mentioned the, um, democracy itself. And I've always sort of felt that for some reason, people weren't fighting for democracy. Maybe they're doing election protection work, or they didn't. And a lot of people actually argue they didn't believe in democracy. And there is some risk when we tell people that the system is rigged, they may not want to vote. But still, when you say democracy itself, What do you mean?
3: I mean, our our basic system that in the end, the majority will should be reflected in our governance at all levels, which is what the founders meant when they said create a republic, that that is itself being assaulted in large part because people, as I said, understand that a robust democracy would not serve their interests. They wouldn't succeed. I want to say a couple of things about your question. And maybe this changes with Ukraine. I hope so, but I I I would I would wait. I wouldn't I won't believe it till I see it. Everything I'm saying is to a group of people who I think are motivated by the idea of saving our democracy. I don't believe that that's necessarily what you run a campaign on if you're a candidate. Because I think for a lot of people whose daily lives are challenging or who are hearing from all sorts, they're, they're hearing on Twitter or on cable about all the crazy stuff we all see every day, just saying democracy isn't gonna win you the votes. In fact, Republicans right now, are, they think democracy is being attacked by Democrats. So the thing that I think we have to be smart about is we all need to know it's, it's at risk. And to the extent we find the people who care about that, let's all rally around saving it. But when it comes to, you know, Beto O'Rourke's campaign in Texas, I don't think he should run 30 second ads in the last month about democracy. I think he should, and here's the trick, and I go through this in my book. As I mentioned about halfway through, in almost every place you have these undemocratic broken state houses, you have horrible public outcomes. You have roads that are falling apart. You have schools falling apart. You have an energy grid in Texas uh, collapsing. So people froze to death in winter in Texas of all places. You have terrible outcomes. And I believe the best campaigns if you're to, to show people either direct, explicitly or implicitly why it matters that their state house and their state are no longer democracies, it's by showing them that that is undermining things in their own life they care about. In Kansas, the best example of that was the current Democratic governor of Kansas, which doesn't have very much. She ran her entire campaign on the fact that Kansas was down to four days of school a week because they had so underfunded everything in the Kansas budget. She didn't talk about everything I just talked about. She didn't talk about Chris Kobach, who was running against her, who was terrible. She talked about the fact that, why in the world are we down to four days of school a week in Kansas? And that was something that would have much wider appeal. And it's something that anywhere in Kansas where they had four days of school a week, they'd say, yeah, why Why are we stuck with that? Just like Beto, I think is very smart to focus on um, uh, the energy grid. I mean, it's a perfect example of how everyday people are paying the price of corrupt and undemocratic government. In Ohio, I'd focus on schools collapsing and small towns dying under their trickle down economics. So I think that we, we should rally around democracy, but I also don't think we should necessarily assume that that is a, uh, you know, that's necessarily your campaign message. Although I do think, given what's happening in Ukraine, maybe people will wake up to the fact that democracy is in trouble even then though i worry that people think it's trouble for different reasons the number one thing we need to do is show them how it falling apart impacts their lives every day even if they're not political at all
1: you you talk about how we need to turn our local communities into laboratories of democracy right and there's there's also a lot of Voter suppression, even in like in my own town, Whittier, where we had to sue to get them to have elections by districts and right. they still want to do off cycle elections. I mean, at every level, there seems to be uh, suppression and some corruptions going on. Yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering if there's particular reforms or things you foresee. How, how
3: do we deal uh, there with there? Is So so if you're in a blue area, I mean, he, here's what I put in the book. If you're in a red area, you're obviously fighting to stop suppression. If you're in a blue area, what I'd ask of you, and I know some of you are in California, you, I, it helps everybody, including yourselves, if your government is passing the greatest pro-voter reforms going. And every time a pro reform works, it provides a case study for other people to model off of. Here's an example. Uh, Washington and Oregon, are the ones who expanded early vote into vote by mail and they added drop boxes everywhere. And lo and behold, people love drop boxes and voter turnout went way up in those states. So other states before the 20 election at least, uh, and Trump knows he lost partly because of this, they all started modeling after it. The more you can do in a blue area to create good practices, like I talked about laboratories of democracy. There are other things that are being done right now too. uh, automatic voter registration. It, it's absurd that we play these games of registering people. Of course, it's you know, if you show up at a place and change your address in a government building, why not Im- immediately say, let's update your voting registration address while you're there? Uh, some states have done an opt-out system. That would eliminate the entire need for purging that these states use as an excuse to, to attack these coalitions of voters. So states that have done automatic voter registration, are helping other states. Now, they don't wanna do it, but at least, and so in a blue state, don't just focus on red states, although we love your help, focus on making sure that your states and your local communities are doing good things with voting that can be models everywhere else. And and break it down the local level, and I haven't done this yet because I've been running around uh, just rolling out the book. Down the road, I wanna find examples of a city government that is really leaning into empowering its voters. You know, in a state like Ohio or Georgia, the voters of our large cities are the ones being attacked every day by purging and voter ID laws and other tricks that get them knocked off the rolls. And so every mayor of these cities should feel a responsibility to empower their constituents who are the ones being attacked. And I'd love to find examples of mayors, and I have some, but I wanna really sort of formalize this and say, hey, every mayor in this country, do what mayor of the mayor of Cincinnati did because he's registering people at every health clinic and rec center. He's he's set up a way that you know how to vote early. He's made it easy to get IDs for free if it's a voter ID problem. They all should be doing this. And I worry, and I'm, this isn't a criticism, too many of them just assume that's not part of their job. And I'd say it is central to your job since it's your community, that is being poorly represented because so many of your voters are being purged. So we need to come up with that, and you know, you can do this through your podcast and in this group. We need to find what are the best models of success uh, that that others can mimic off of, and that's something I'll, I'll work on as soon as I sort of have a have a little time to work on it. All right, thank
1: you. Okay, um, George Ripley, did you um, want to ask your um, question?
4: Yes, please. Um, I'll just bring up two institutions that I want to ask you about. Uh, The first is the election assistance commission. You know, they have two representatives from every state that's supposed to report back to this federal commission. Uh, And theoretically it it follows the idea that, that the, the states are the laboratories of democracy. So these two representatives should be gleaning the best practices and, and bringing them to a central commission to, to, uh, you know, elaborate and push forward across the country. So I'm very disappointed that the EAC doesn't seem to have any teeth in that. And I'd like right. to ask the other thing. Uh, point too is, um, you know, the the model, the organizing model of uh, we know the resistance to fixing democracy because politicians really don't have an incentive to change the system that they're already winning. So um, then uh, it. Falls to the people. The uh, labor union model. The the labor unions got political power when they created a united front around behind the the uh, the the AFL the American Federation of Labor. There's a a new organization, a relatively new. It's about five years old. Called the Declaration for American Democracy, and it seems to me that they're really trying to follow that model of creating the United Front, and they've got 250 members of major, major national organizations, uh, and uh, and uh, I thought uh, your any insights you might have on them would be interesting.
3: Yeah, no, I mean. There are groups that are in um, your first one, I agree. I don't want to, I don't want to criticize. My guess is that EAC is working with the sectors of state that are interested in being productive and does pass that stuff around. Uh, but if, you know, my hope is that that as they pass voting, voting rights legislation that they really beef that up. The problem though, is that again, that that entire institution assumes that the secretary of state and legislatures of these states actually want to help voters, and for the reasons I described, in many states they just don't, or at least they don't want to help the voters that they think would vote against them. Which in Ohio means making it a lot harder for millions of people to vote. Uh, they they some some are better at hiding that than others, but that's the problem. Is that EAC is almost assuming that, that that's not the case, at least in a lot of these states. Um, but but I, I and I think that. We need to come up with other ways to share these best practices. And we also have to think about how can we get, as I said earlier, below the official secretary of state and boards of elections who are looking at those best practices. I know those officials in Ohio, they're trying to do that. But we need to say to every school board member, every library board member, every city council member, you too have to, can lift democracy. And here's how you can make a difference with your voters. That I think at this point, you have an obligation to lift and you as a nonprofit and you as a small business, you all can do that. Um, You all can lift it. So I think it goes beyond the EAC to something bigger. And there are other, there are a lot of organizations that I, that are out there now doing what you mentioned that coalition you talked about. My worry is, and I just, this will sound, you know, again, I wrote my book quickly. I didn't research every single angle that could be researched, but I don't think they're at the grassroots. I don't think they're at the level where it's really changing You know, who shows up. Do they get a free ID if they need one? Do they know how to register? If they were doing that, I would, see, I would have seen it here. You'd see it in other places. So I think they're good, but they need to get deeper. But I also think, as I said, and again, my book is not going to be the thing that does it. The power of it, the power of it Will come when we, when somehow individuals see the role they can play in the same way Robert Kennedy said, A little ripple builds. And somehow we have to get everyone. And again, this is why I literally run around, and do these every night, try and convince others to spread the word about my book or whatever else they can summarize about it. When everyone takes a, an individual responsibility on their shoulders to lift democracy and everything they do, that's when it becomes a scale that I think moves things. Uh, and we're just not there yet uh, and, and that's what we have to start doing it's voting it's subscribing to a local paper because they're the ones covering this stuff and unless we subscribe to them they're going to go away it's making sure you do not leave any single state house district unchallenged that is a gift that is a gift to these gerrymandered state houses when 20 districts out of 99 don't even have a challenger i mean it's literally uh, you know couldn't be worse for the long game i go through all those steps in my book but um We just need to have individual people take some ownership. And then, obviously, those institutions matter as well. But right now, to your point, whether it's EAC or some of the broader ones, there's some people doing good work. Most of them, I think, have a federal focus. And my worry is that's part of the problem. That, That The Koch brothers know the democracy of our country is shaped in states. And most of the people who are fighting for it are off in D.C., and not back in these states. I mean, I literally beg reporters to come to states and cover the absurd gerrymandering process that's happening. It's very hard to convince them to cover any of it. I had one, one nice person, a producer say, we're really interested in this state story. Oh, we'll come back when it's closer to the midterms. I said, they're gerrymandering it now. The midterms are being decided right now in some of these states. Coming for the midterms is too late. But there's just it's really hard to get the attention of all these folks on where democracy is shaped. And again, that's a gift to the Koch brothers. They love and they know that there's no attention in states. They love that everything's about January 6th and Marjorie Taylor Greene and not the hundreds that are just like them in states. So we have to figure out how to get those kinds of organizations and the media to focus on state-level stuff as much as federal. I hope, great you're encouraged,
4: I hope you're encouraged to think that the that the movement for electoral reform is growing by leaps and bounds in the last several years.
3: It I agree. And, and by the way, I, I, I'm all about other types of reforms too. So the only reason that we cha- that we have a chance of ending gerrymandering in Ohio, and it's a fight right now if you're watching this, is because we push for reforms through constitutional amendments. Our our legislators wouldn't have done anything, but we we gathered signatures for two different constitutional amendments. And they each passed with more than 70% of the vote. So I think going right to the people on a lot of these issues is the better strategy because most of the things that we're talking about, if framed the right way, can be quite popular. So yeah, I'm all about sort of grassroots. And Michigan has an independent commission for redistricting. Why? Totally independent groups put that together and it also passed decisively. So I think we should be pushing these reforms at the grassroots level. And I think again and again, some will lose. I've seen them lose here, but it's the best way to break up the monopoly that these legislatures have. Let's see, Susan, you ready?
1: Yeah,
5: I have two questions. When um, was um, about newspapers, local newspapers? Yeah, that's the biggest difficulty in the United States. They've been taken over by this mass media, and yeah. the mass media don't—they don't have individual reporters anymore that report on local news. So, like, I live in Redlands, California, and we lost, along with Orange County and Long Beach, our neighborhood newspaper. This conglomerate bought it, LA News Group. So, and they're very white, right-winged. So, uh, we have our own. Though we um, <laughs> kind of have some smart people in town. Uh, they created their own newspaper that actually, you know, does go into you know issues. But that's what Biden was talking about. He was. He's trying to urge people to bring back their newspapers. I think he's even actually giving money for that because that's part of our democracy. But we lost yeah. them through corporations. Most yeah. cities in the United States do not do not have a city newspaper anymore. That, that's a really big issue. Yeah,
3: no, I go through that in the book. I mean, the num- they are now in a lot of states an average of about three, uh, three reporters per state house. Uh, the reason the Koch brothers like these state houses and Alec is because they know they can do some of the craziest things. Almost none of it gets covered. If they do 10 crazy things, maybe two of them get covered. And it's, it's so the big cities, a lot of the big cities still have um, newspapers. But the small towns, especially, either have been bought out, like you said, or they're just gone. Mm-hmm. And so the focus on the individual state house member is largely gone. Another thing that's happened, as you've described, there are no more ed boards. There are no more columnists. There's very little analysis from people who really know what's happening. So it's sort of a he said, she said, but there's never someone who's been around for 30 years saying, oh, that's the most ridiculously gerrymandered map I've ever seen because those people are the more higher paid people in a newspaper. They're the first to go. Or these these editorials are being written from hundreds of miles away because it's a conglomerate. So the whole sort of the nature of the old small town paper that was one major check and balance, as well as a way to make all this transparent, as you've said, is largely, um, is largely gone. And I think that's, that's one of the things, and that's why I, I put in the book, if you've got a paper doing it well, subscribe to it. Um, also, there are some nonprofit journalism outfits that are popping up all over the country. There's some major funders that are helping them, um, that are helping them do that. And they are actually doing a good job in a lot of places. Help them out. Uh, I put in the book, you know, put your, we got to put our our, democracy, our money where democracy is. And a lot of that does come through journalism. Share stories. You know, every, I know these reporters. They are, they're all judged by the number of links and hits they get. So if there's a state house story, share it. Don't just share the sports column or something else, which everyone shares. Look into this stuff. Because we if we want the, the part of democracy, if we want the parts of democracy that are healthy to be lifted, we have to bring more incentive to those happening. And a lot of that comes around local papers. I'm, someone asked for my email. I'm going to put my email address up here. If you've got a group that you want me to speak to or something, I'm happy to do it um, if you email me here. But, but
5: yeah, maybe yeah, I'm just thinking maybe the University Redlands would be interested. They're really yeah. interested in things like that. Um, yeah, no, I that, don't things. that. And, and also um, Citizens United. That's another you know, why isn't, why, why can't we get that um, amended?
3: I mean, I'll just added. say we, we are, <laughs> one here. of the tragedies of 16 isn't just that Trump beat Clinton, but that um, we, we would have had a Supreme Court that would have struck down gerrymandering and struck down and changed Citizens United. And I hate to say it, we're now stuck with that for mm-hmm. a long time mm-hmm. um, now the one thing I'd say is and this gets back to sort of my uh, the positives in my book we actually citizens United becomes less relevant in the gerrymandered part of our politics because most of these elections are predetermined anyway. 98 percent of these elections are predetermined in these states what, what the big money that I worry about especially is the big money that's going to the system of flying these goofy legislators all over the country to give them, Legislation they go then go back and actually pass that's a significant expe- expenditure as their campaigns. When again, their campaigns are predetermined. We have, though, a good thing one of the best things that's happened in politics in the last decade is the explosion of online small dollar giving on our side. It's allowing us to compete. I mean, uh, Jamie Harrison raised more money than Lindsey Graham did. Uh, we're seeing it all over. What what we have to do, you saw tons of money go into the race against Mitch McConnell right, right near where I'm sitting. The problem is we're getting excited about the wrong things because we have this short-term federal mindset. If we need to take our energy for federal races and spread the love to democracy in states, and we need to have as much of our small-dollar giving uh, go to helping candidates in a much broader way, I'm working on a model to do this uh, that that where you start helping through small to other nations far more state house candidates at all levels, and not simply the few federal races people pay attention to, where the money gets spent, hundred fifty million dollars gets spent and we lose by by a lot. We have to spread that money around. And that's the best way that we can um, we can battle, um, I'm gonna respond to this question here. That's the best way we can battle. This is United, but we have to be a lot smarter in how we, in how we get excited about where we put our money. Okay, Karen, um, come on in.
2: I, uh, thank you. I've, I've heard you before on Network Nova, and it's always inspiring. Um, uh, I'm from Virginia, where we sadly thought we were going to hold on to the Democrats. Thank goodness we have a still a democratic firewall in the Senate. So they yep. didn't change our, uh, and thank goodness we have that firewall. Um, I think for us, um, we've started a lot of better messaging and a rural uh, effort and, and reaching out to, to all kinds of, of voters and that kind of thing. And a lot of social messaging work as well as writing to newspapers on all the issues that come up, but it's it's like off elections, Democrats don't come out. I mean, we had more than other uh, off elections come out in the last election, but if they'd come out in the numbers like the presidential one or near that, we wouldn't have this governor we have now. Right, he, He's so bad, he might be the motivating factor right. like Trump was, but any ideas on is it a certain issue,
3: or yeah? What's scary is um, that the the other side's showing up in big numbers right now. I mean, that's what happened in Virginia. That's what happened in New Jersey. If if we had not had a really strong turnout in New Jersey on our side, that the Republican turnout to beat a pretty popular incumbent would have um, um, would have won. But they really rallied, and so we. We can't just do what we've done before and just have a a dip in the midterm turnout because Trump has figured out and Trump-style candidates have figured out how to pull people out and to vote that weren't voting over the last 15 years or so. Uh, And so we have to up our game. I mean, all I'd say is we need, um, and and, uh, thank God you held on to that Senate because it is able to stop some really bad things. And that, again, that speaks to the importance of state house and not just the statewide offices that you're being saved right now by that. Um, We just, you know, I just don't, you know, there's a lot of ways to do it, but we, we literally create a, a framework where we say to, you know, we, we, without saying it directly, but sometimes even directly, we leave the impression with all of our voters that it's the federal years that really matter. And it's the federal races that matter and it's killing us because that, auto, that means automatically when it's not a presidential year, boom, our turnout goes way down. The Koch brothers know that that next state house win is as important for them as who the president is. And you saw this. I know we're doing some good, I mean, Joe Biden's leading right now with Ukraine, I think very well. They've gotten some things done in, in, in the, um, in the um, Senate House. I wish it had been more. But I, I hate to say it, the Republican agenda, they've gotten even more done at the state level in the last year and a half than we've done at the federal level because they kept fighting and they know where power is. And we have to start figuring that out too and, and say to people, if you care about these issues, the same issues we debate for the presidency, they're happening in your state at that governor and state house level too. And, and I, there needs to be a very high level you know, agreement all the way down through all of us that we have to stop framing everything. And that slide I showed you where we just literally think about it as the federal, federal, federal. And that ends up shaping what we tell our voters or what our voters think is important to them. So if you have a once in a lifetime incredible candidate like Obama on the ballot, you know, look what happens. We show up everywhere, we win everything. But we wait for that moment to get excited as opposed to thinking, my God, all of our lives and democracy itself are on the ballot in, in the federal midterm and not only in the states it might get us a Senate win. And, and we, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, and my main thrust on this is I think it comes back to uh, a lot of the everyday issues that affect people. And if you're in a rural part of Virginia, I think this is even more true. We have to figure out how to translate our deep conservative democracy into the everyday issues that people care about everywhere. Like they want a good school system. They need accessible health care. Their town is dying. Um, you know, frankly, Trump and even, uh, what's his name? Um, Youngkin. Youngkin campaigned on giving more money to schools, didn't he? He got he's that. Not, but he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. But he campaigned on it. He he understood that a Republican governor winning in Virginia needed to sound like he was good with schools. And he and he pushed, He I think he said... I'll invest more in public schools than anyone in the history of Virginia. And that was smart. Now he's not doing it and he only has one term so they can't even hold him accountable. But um, I think we need to not only be sort of at the high level debate over democracy, which could work for some people and, and in certain moments can work everywhere. But I think we have to get into how do these issues affect everyday lives? I mean, I think one reason, for example, we won an 18, with with Pelosi winning the majority was it was a big referendum on health care and people thought it was a health care election well once it was about health care we were going to win and we got to figure out how to you know in, in in Michigan it was fix the damn roads well once you made it about roads and it really became um a, a referendum on that well then you're going to win you got to you got to break it down to how it affects everyday people especially in the parts of these states that we're not doing as well because they would love to, they'd love to get us into the national debates about all the the divisive issues or the ones they try and make divisive. If I was running in a small town, in Ohio, my attitude, I'd walk down the main street and be like, "Why have you? Why has your town been left looking like this from 30 years of Republican rule in Columbus? It's unacceptable." And don't change the subject because this is unacceptable. And I think we have to we have to figure out how to do that.
2: And a lot of our our state candidates. That were running in red areas did better than the top of the district who did that so
3: totally yeah I, and and one of the things that i'm i'm very passionate about is we have to support we have to get someone running and i see this question run for something that's the last question on here i love run for something we need people running in every district and as you just said we need people who are locally known and respected running and then we need to have them have enough money so they can actually say something. And if we throw all the money at the to, to beat Mitch McConnell and there's none at all for all those rural candidates, of course we're gonna do badly in rural America. We, we're we not even trying. And so one thing, I'm gonna put this up here, people are interested in this. There's a model in um, Missouri where they, they figured out a way to get people to give small dollar donations to an organization that then gives it to every single candidate running for the State House of Missouri. So each of them has enough money to actually have mailers, maybe digital ads, other things, to actually carry that message, as you just said, to finish above where the state level candidate even finishes, because they're known. I want to expand that model to other states. I want to bring it to Ohio. Because we can't simply focus, I, I, of course we need to focus on the swing districts. But if 40 of the districts literally have a, no candidate at all, or one that's so underfunded, they might as well not be running, we're killing ourselves. We're not even basically existing in those places. And that's got to end if we're going to have any chance of doing well in tough states. Maybe you don't need that in some states, but you're not going to win Ohio or Virginia or Pennsylvania over time, let alone winning back states like Missouri. Um, No, I mean text. Oh, what I put? Yeah, that's what I put. X, every text the words, every district to the number, uh, yeah, to the number 33777, thank you, Jeffrey. Um, Yeah, I'll say it again. Uh, So I wanna try and talk a way to get enough excitement about helping everybody as we get to beat Mitch McConnell in a race that Mitch McConnell's not gonna lose. And I worry until we do that, we're just not really fighting we're not really, in, we're not almost a national party if we're not doing that. And if every state house matters for democracy, we're giving up too many by not doing that.
4: There's a guy who's very savvy, I know him very well, and I said, this is genius.
3: I think in terms of leadership, he's getting an A.
0: These are atrocities, they're an outrage to the world.
4: How smart is that? And he's gonna go in and be a peacekeeper.
0: And there's no question that Russia is the aggression. Trump said Putin's smart. I mean, he's taken over a country
4: for $2 worth of sanctions. I'd say that's pretty smart. Who
0: in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors?
4: I think he is a worker. He's a leader of his country. I do respect him.